0: The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 16th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham from far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to there cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, even if they do not listen to the prophets, Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The gospel. Of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. The assembly may be seated. Grace and peace to you from God, our Creator, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. It was the summer before my freshman year of high school when I began commuting on the L all the way. From the Harlem Blue Line station downtown to Clark and Lake, transferring to the Brown Line, taking it to Armitage. I did that. I was 14 years old, and I had never ridden public transportation by myself my entire life, but there I was, striking out on my own at the ripe old age of 14. My parents made sure I was ready for success. They put in my hand a photo ID that I could use as my bus pass so I was able to get on and pay my fares without having to worry about it. They gave me a, a, a calling card so that I could use the pay phones in case there was an emergency and a pay phone was nearby because, you know, that's a thing. And the most important thing they gave me was advice. It was simple advice, but it was important advice. Never engage with strangers on public transportation. Simple stranger danger advice. And I took it to heart. I was really, really good at not engaging people. So good that over the course of four years of an hour one-way commute to high school, I never personally ran into any issues, right? It's not that there weren't some close calls, right? Sometimes someone would try to make small talk with me and I would just kind of pretend like I couldn't see him uh, Other times maybe maybe there was someone who was a bit intoxicated who was looking for intention. I definitely didn't engage there and Even from time to time there were the panhandlers some of whom I could recognize by voice alone who I just never engaged with and I was so good in fact at doing this And I listened so well to my parents that this this idea, this ability to be able to just ignore people became something I was pretty adept at in adulthood as well. And from time to time, that skill, we'll call it, comes into play. I'll be sitting in my car at a red light and I'll look over and I'll see a person in need looking for a little bit of help. And what do I do? I go through the Rolodex of reasons why I can't. That, that same Rolodex that I had in my mind as a kid as to why I needed to be leery of strangers and not engage, same thing kicks up, right? I start looking for reasons to not engage. Oh, I don't have any cash on me, so there's no way I can help this person. Or, or, or I don't want to ruin the flow of traffic, right? That would be a horrendous thing. It would be dangerous, really, if I, if I stopped here and, and gave them what they're asking for. So I'm worried about other people, right? Or, or maybe, maybe it's this situation just doesn't feel terribly safe, right? And, and so it's just better I don't, I don't engage and we just keep moving. And, and it doesn't feel good to admit this publicly that I don't engage always in that way. It's worse, actually, when you do it and you're wearing one of these collars, as it turns out. Yeah, the look you get, not the best feeling in the world. And you know it's even worse is when you have a car full of compassionate kids with you. And while I'm sitting there going through the Rolodex of reasons why I can't help, all I hear from the backseat is, how are we going to help? Ooh, yikes. So sometimes, sometimes I relent. Katie and I will take the boys to the store and we'll go and we'll pick out items, simple things, little, little snacks and maybe some personal care items, and we, and we put them in a Ziploc bags and we keep them in our car so that when we're in that situation in the future, we have something of significance to actually be able to offer. We, we take away my excuse to not engage. Now, I share this not as a public confession to tell you what terrible of a person I am. You already know I'm a terrible person. We don't need to, we don't need to beat a dead horse here, right? And I I don't share this story to tell you what a great parent I am, because you already know I'm an awesome parent, right? We've we've established that over the last five years. But I I, I share this because it's sort of the lens from which I read our gospel today. And it helps maybe me, or maybe it helps you to, to see that as we read this parable, I get it. I I think I get where the rich man is coming from, and as much as I hate to admit it, sometimes I identify far more closely with him than any other character in this familiar story. And it's an interesting one, right? It's a very straightforward parable that Jesus tells today. It follows a very linear sort of sequence of events, and it's clear the idea, or at least it seems very clear, the idea we're supposed to pull from it. It's the story of two men who essentially foil each other right? On the one hand, we have the nameless man only known as the rich man, and this rich man we know is rich because he, dry, he, he, he dresses in wonderful clothes, and he eats sumptuously, and he's so rich, so connected, that when he dies, there's people there to bury his dead body. On the other hand, we've got Lazarus, Interestingly enough, the only character in all of Scripture named in any parable Jesus tells, Lazarus. And this Lazarus guy isn't dressed in royal finery. He's dressed in swords that ooze, and the local dogs come and lick him. Oh, and this Lazarus is so hungry that he's willing to eat the droppings from that sumptuous feast the rich man has, but he can't because the dogs get to it first. Lazarus, who is so poor that he can't even be buried. We're told that he's just whisked away into the next life because nobody in this life cared enough to even put his body in the ground. As I hear this story, Right, as we hear the story unfold, we start to think, who are we here? And the only thing that connects our characters is death itself. And even in death, there is a chasm that separates these two characters. And in death, this this great reversal, suddenly. <laughs> Lazarus, who suffered so much in this life, is now walking with Abraham himself and is content. And the rich man, who had nothing but contentment in this life, is suffering endlessly. Now, if we were to stop right there, if we were to just end the sermon here, which i would thought about doing, the lesson would be very clear, right? Be like Lazarus. Because Lazarus, in the end, wins out. So be like Lazarus. You want to know the problem? I don't know much about Lazarus. In fact, the only thing I know about Lazarus is he suffered immensely in this life. And I don't think suffering is a virtue for us to aspire to. I don't think that God is telling us, go and be miserable, go and be poverty-stricken, go and be covered in sores and be in pain your entire life so that next life you can enjoy things. Now, I know our God comes and walks along those people, accompanies us when we suffer, accompanies those who are stricken by poverty, but I really hate the idea of glorifying suffering in any which way. Indeed, I think this is where the rich man falls short, right? Because in death, in this conversation with Abraham, Abraham says, you and your brothers have Moses and the prophets, and they should listen to them. You want to know what Mosaic law says? Do you want to know what the prophets were telling the people of Abraham, the sons and daughters of Abraham to do? To care for the poor, to, to make sure that you provide for the needy, to love your neighbor, but also the stranger among us. And this, this is where the rich man falls short. He's not being punished because he's rich. He's being punished because he allowed his wealth to make the plight of others invisible. He used his wealth as a means of building gates, walls, whatever image you want to use, so that he could ignore the needs of others. When in reality, the law and the prophets make it clear that that is where we belong. Ministering to those in need. Ministering to those who have want. He lived a gated life, and it's led to this great chasm that he cannot bridge. And this takes me back to where we started. Sometimes, sometimes, we do this thing where we try to ignore poverty. We try to ignore suffering. And we give ourselves reasons. We come up with excuses. But you can't do that. Whether the the poverty or struggling is visible or invisible, whether it be the person who I see day in and day out on the same L car, or maybe... It's the invisible hands on the tag behind my shirt. The people who labored for for nothing so that I can wear these awesome-looking clothes. Or, Or the people who labor in fields tirelessly, who don't have enough to eat themselves, but make sure that I can eat sumptuously each and every meal of each and every day. And even in death, rich man still somehow figures out a way to ignore Lazarus. He doesn't even talk to him. Instead, he goes to boss him around, but he won't talk to him because he doesn't want to recognize he exists. So instead, he tells Abraham, hey, Abraham, tell Lazarus what I need from him. Even in death, the rich man just doesn't get it. And that's what leads into to this great reversal at the end. Right? But this great reversal isn't some giant plot twist. We knew it was coming all along. We've known since Mary sang out in the Magnificat where she said that the the mighty will be pulled down from their their thrones, where where the rich will be sent away empty, and those, those who have nothing will be filled. It's the fourth chapter of Luke where he makes it clear, I came to bring good news to the poor. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. But here's my problem. Here's my problem with this gospel. Here's my problem with this parable doesn't go far enough it's a nice start i like the idea of a great reversal i love the concept of people having something more in the next life than this especially had very little in this life but i think god is capable of such greater things the lesson cannot be be poor in this life so you win the lottery in the next one because that's a crappy lesson doesn't change anything. Because what it implies is that someone's going to suffer. All we're doing is flipping the script. All we're doing is turning it on its head. And to me, that's not true justice. True justice cannot simply be inverting advantage and disadvantage in the other direction. Because I think that limits what God is capable of. There's not an economy of justice that exists that says there's only so much to go around, which means only certain people can thrive, but if someone's got to suffer, and maybe every once in a while those who suffered thrive and those who who, who were thriving suffer. It, It has to be more than that. And that's where I find myself in this story. There has to be more. And I think there is, and I think actually Abraham starts to get there, but doesn't quite take us all the way, so I'm going to do it for us, right? Abraham says, think about that idea of resurrection. Some of you are so committed to making others in need around you invisible that I could literally raise from the dead and you would find a way to ignore me. But here's the good news. We are people of resurrection, Just a few minutes ago, our kids told us that this is where they see God. And if this is where we see God, then the resurrection matters for us. And if the resurrection matters for us, it's important we understand why. It matters for us because the resurrection isn't just a great reversal. It is a whole new creation. It knocks down the gates that separate us. It fills the chasms we can't cross. It defeats death itself. And so, as people who believe in the resurrection, as people who take seriously this identity as followers of Christ, I think we need to take seriously this idea that maybe we can strive for more than just a reversal. It's not just saying, well, we'll put up with the garbage of this life because the next one might be better. No. Jesus says you have the keys to the kingdom now. It's already here. Look around. See it in action. My love and my grace isn't a gift for a long distant future. Instead, unwrap the gift here today. A gift of a creation where nobody is invisible, a gift of creation where all have equal access to love and grace and mercy along with the basic necessities required to live in this life. That is the good news for me today, that Jesus is not limited to a parable. But instead, Jesus has handed to us the good news which transcends even this life. And if this life, all we want for justice is to flip the script from time to time, dear people of God, we have fallen miserably short of what God is capable of doing in, through, and around us. Thanks be to God. Amen.